Oh, we are back sooner than I thought. Well, we have stuff to share here on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. So this is a loose ends episode, a few scraggly little tales that go over some things that we've already passed on our slow and steady timeline of British Broadcasting's backstory. So we're calling this episode Loose Ends 2 bits and bobs. We've done a loose end episode once before, you see. We'll be heading this episode to July 1920 to hear an eyewitness account of one of the most significant wireless weeks in history, when Arthur Burroughs boarded the good ship Victorian with a lot of wireless kit, some eager journalists and a dream. It was generally agreed that an unnecessary amount of spelling was taking place. We'll also head to October 1922 for more on the tale of 5MG. You may recall that's the pop-up Glasgow station by Frank Milligan and George Garscadden before the BBC came to town. We'll be hearing from Frank Milligan's son and grandson. The motor launch was called the Radio Queen. Thanks to our friend Eddie Bowen for making this one possible. Plus a quick burst of a popular guest, prop rescuer Bob Richardson. The silver spirit marker pen was invented and that changed everything. It's a sneaky cheeky bonus episode that we just couldn't resist putting together of the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello, it's Paul Carenza here, it's you there, it's episode 77, and we're not meant to be here. I was meant to be having a month off this podcast to get some other things done, but we've got tales to tell, got podcasts to podcast, and I'm paying the web hosting fees anyway, might as well put something out there, eh, for your ears, and some lovely stories that just couldn't wait. July 1920 in a mo. First of all, quick news updates. If you're listening to this before November the 10th, 2023. It's pretty soon, um, or it's very much behind you if you're listening in the far future. But if it's before then, you still have time to join me for a very special live show doing the first religious broadcast restaged in Peckham in the actual venue where it happened. It's quite a magical thing. I don't think I've done that before. I've done a few live shows about old radio, but not like where it happened before. That's quite magical. So I've invited the great and the good of uh, religious broadcasting and broadcast historians. We've got some BBC producers, commissioners, presenters, maybe ex-presenters, perhaps. It's going to be a celebration of a century plus of religious broadcasting. You don't have to be religious to come along nor do you have to be religious to enjoy it. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Uh, we're actually be going to be putting the recording out as our Christmas special on this podcast. So um, if you're in the far future, don't worry, you can still hear it. The Christmas special of 2023 will be the recording of the uh, the Peckham show. November the 10th, though, if you want to be there in person, it's free as well. I'm just doing it for the joy of it. PaulCarenza.com slash tour for details of that Peckham show, November the 10th, and also other dates you can see there of my mini tour of a slightly different show called An Evening of Very Old Radio. I'll be visiting Leicester, Bedford, Rains Park, Totnes, maybe somewhere near you too. Do get in touch and book the show in. I'm quite cheap. But nothing is cheaper than the Peckham show, of course. Uh, a historical moment in the making. So do come along to that if you would like. Uh, so yeah, I'm on tour elsewhere. Do come and see. Do come and say hi. Which brings us to our first historical nugget this episode with a bit more information on something we featured way back on episode five, I think it was. It's Arthur Burroughs. Before he became first voice of the BBC, he was all at sea on a ship heading across the Atlantic to an imperial press conference in Ottawa. Well, last week, 
I was doing a show in Chelmsford, birthplace of radio, of course. And what I love at these shows is after it, I want to thankfully it's finished, but no, it's when people ask questions and come out of a chat afterwards. And at this occasion, one audience member called Judy, she emailed me a few days later to say that after the show, she'd spotted a book in her local community bookshop. And this book was called Wireless at Sea, The First 50 Years by H.E. Hancock, co-produced by the Marconi Company. Now, I've got a lot of books on old radio. I didn't know about this one. It was new to me. So uh, I looked into it, and uh, there's some lovely little tales in there, including an actual eyewitness account of this first amazing voyage of this ship that had so many first firsts of broadcasting. On board, Arthur Burroughs and the Marconi crew there made happen the first ship's newspaper. There were concerts sent from Chelmsford to this mid-Atlantic ship over record-breaking distances. And there were all-request radio from other local ships to Arthur Burroughs on board. Can you play this gramophone record? And he did for them. It's all in this book. It's something I've not read before, this first-hand account as written at the time by someone who was there. So uh, I posted bits of this on our Facebook and Twitter pages. You might have read this there, but it's nice to commit it to audio, isn't it? So let's explore that week from an unknown person. It might be written by Burroughs, I'm not entirely sure. And this is a month after Burroughs escorted Melba for her Chelmsford broadcast concert, but now he's at sea, trying to demonstrate the wireless opportunities to the press. On July 21st, 1920, telephone messages were being put through at noon from the Victorian to the Marconi station at Chelmsford in Essex. The Victorian at the time was 26 miles northwest of Tory Island, or a distance of nearly 600 miles from the Essex station. The demonstration was not as advertised in the morning edition of the North Atlantic Times, but incidentally gave the ship's telephone a much more exacting test than was originally intended. When the Victorian called up Poldhu in Cornwall in the morning, that station replied, but a few minutes later, Chelmsford broke in with a statement that as she could hear the Victorian distinctly, and Poldew wished to be silent owing to the immediate proximity of a ship in distress, she would accept a limited number of messages. These were sent and received correctly, despite the report of a thunderstorm over England by communicating direct by telephone with Chelmsford. The Victorian had established an easy record for a ship at sea. That same morning, the Press Association experiments in the wireless circulation of news were heard distinctly in the loudspeaking device in the first-class lounge. So what we have here, then, is the test of will the journalists receive and send news from the mainland? So Arthur Burroughs is showing off, look, this is what wireless can do. Bear in mind, at this point, he sort of knew that the British government were about to ban the musical concerts that Melba and, and the like could be doing from Chelmsford. So Burroughs is looking at this point for what is the future of broadcasting? And if not broadcasting, can we sort of narrow cast, essentially? Can we just send point to point, but get the press involved and send news wirelessly over these great distances? What about the next day then? July 22, 1920. The Chelmsford concert was clearly audible on the telephones when the ship was 900 miles distant, but was accompanied by extraneous noises when heard on a loudspeaker. The noises were apparently due to a bad electrical storm over England. So at this point then, this is a concert going from Chelmsford, like the Melba concert had before, like Winifred Sayer and the band were doing back in February of 1920, you may recall. But it's being sent from Chelmsford all the way out to sea, what, 900 miles away, he said. Sounded better on headphones, apparently, like a silent disco of sorts, one can only imagine. 
Halfway through its Atlantic voyage, they're on July the 23rd of 1920. The Victorian can hear news and music from Chelmsford. They're playing requests for ships and they're transmitting music to Newfoundland, west over the Atlantic. This was unheard of at this point. July 23rd, 1920. At breakfast time, the Press Association trials in news distribution by the Marconi telephone at Chelmsford were easily audible to all in the lounge. So distinct was the speech, it was generally agreed that an unnecessary amount of spelling was taking place. During the morning, short wireless concerts with gramophone records were given to a number of ships. The Corsican, Olympic, Saturnia and Canada reported hearing the selections with great clearness. This afternoon, a surprise message was received by telegraphy from the special Marconi station at Signal Hill, Newfoundland, stating that the gramophone selections were clearly heard there. Later on, Chelmsford again gave a concert, the various items being heard even more clearly than on the previous day. At the conclusion of the concert, there was an amusing diversion. A loud voice was heard anxiously inquiring for Mr Pemberton of the Daily Mail, who was wanted at the office and whose whereabouts were unknown to his wife. This is a ship at sea full of journalists and a message is sent from the mainland asking where Mr Pemberton is because the Daily Mail don't know and his wife doesn't know that he's boarded this ship and he's off to Canada. July 24th, 1920. Official greetings are sent. At noon, Lord Burnham, as President of the Empire Press Union, was invited to speak by telephone to Sir Bertram Hayes, then Commander of the Olympic, which was steaming for New York on a course 480 miles south of the Victorian. Lord Burnham's message was... I should like to speak from the Victorian to Sir Bertram Hayes on behalf of the delegates of the Empire Press Union going to attend the Imperial Press Conference. We send our greetings and good wishes to you and to all your ship's company. We are having a very pleasant voyage and we are looking forward to a fine tour of Canada. We are all good Canadians in the sense that we rejoice in her progress and well-being. We hope to know more of the part she is bound to play in the future of the Empire by our visit. The Olympic was not fitted for wireless telephony, and Sir Bertram Hayes replied by wireless telegraphy as follows. Your message was received by me with much pleasure and great distinctness. Please accept the best wishes of the Olympic, familiarly known throughout Canada as the Old Reliable, for the success of the visit of the British press delegates to the Imperial Press Conference at Ottawa, and the hope that their deliberations will have a soothing effect on the peace of the world. Bertram Hayes. So that message was sent via Morse code then, because that ship did not have wireless telephones. In other words, it didn't have a microphone. It couldn't send voice messages. That's how rare the human voice was to hear at this point. Ships are used to hearing dots, dashes, Morse code, let alone voice, let alone music. July 25th, 1920, day six at sea. New records are being broken. Yesterday, a new sea record was established for the reception of Chelmsford telephony. The daily concert was audible to all, the Victorian being then 1,530 sea miles distant. The various selections were less clear, however, than on the previous day, owing to slight local electrical interference. Newfoundland reports that the Victorian's gramophone pieces were clearly heard at St John's both Friday and yesterday. You've got Chelmsford in Essex sending out concerts to this ship over 1,500 miles away, and that ship also now and then, not at the same time, plays gramophone records, which are then heard over on the Canadian coast. Incredible. Day 7 at sea. 
July 26th. All the Victorian was enveloped in fog at midday yesterday. Passengers in the ship were sufficiently in touch with the world to be able to hear clearly the national anthem sung by male voices at Chelmsford, over 2,100 land miles distant. This easily eclipses all previous records in long-distance telephonic reception on a passenger liner. At 10.15pm yesterday, wireless telephonic intercommunication was established with Signal Hill, Newfoundland, which was then over 300 miles distant. Lord Burnham, in exchanging greetings with the Premier of Newfoundland, expressed great regret that, for reason of time, the delegation was not able to visit the Dominion. The Premier, in reply, spoke of Newfoundland as a stepping stone between old world and new. He pointed to the part that Newfoundland had taken in establishing cable communication between Europe and America, and in aerial navigation, and expressed his pleasure that she was now taking part in the development of wireless telephony. Other messages were exchanged between the ocean voyagers and those on shore. From early morning until the time of going to press, the Victorian has been in telephonic communication with St John's Newfoundland. There's been a constant interchange of greetings between the ship and ministers and officials of Newfoundland and representatives of the press on the island. One interesting fact was gained during the course of the conversations. The wireless speech from the Victorian had provided Newfoundland with an opportunity for telephony over a greater distance than was then possible on the wired telephone installed on the island. Everyone appeared to have been greatly impressed by the clearness of the speech transmitted by this new medium. Indeed, so radio is still fighting for its place, and look, it's even outpacing the telephone wire in terms of what Newfoundland can do in terms of communication. It's still two years before the BBC comes along, but for now, the joy of this ship's voyage is breaking all sorts of records. July 27th, 1920. Land ahoy! The Victorian arrived at Sydney, Cape Breton Island, so the entry for July 26th was the last dealing with the new wireless experiments. And that's it. The ship docks, the press conference goes ahead, and Burroughs gives a speech on their journey's many wireless firsts. But when he gets back home again to Britain, he finds, essentially, that musical concerts are no more until Eckersley comes along in 1922 and the BBC and the rest is history. Well, there you go. All rather nerdy, I know. But, uh, well, it's nice to find a genuine eyewitness account, especially when you've been looking into this for several years and these things do evade us. So thank you, Judy, for pointing me that way. Now, next up, another loose end and time for some different voices on the podcast. This is another bit that we've already covered, but with extra juicy info, we just had to go back and add it back in again. So our good friend, Eddie Bowen of the Irish Pirate Radio Audio Archive. He's the author of The History of 2BP, Ireland's First Licensed radio station among other books and Eddie has been in touch with me to say that he recently met the grandson of radio pioneer Frank Milligan so the chain goes like this ready episode 48 we told you the tale of 5MG that's Glasgow's experimental radio station run by Frank Milligan and George Garscadden they had wireless shops in Glasgow and this is before the BBC arrived I think it was from October 1922, if memory serves. You can go back and catch episode 48 for all of the details. In Bath Street, Glasgow, Scotland's first experimental radio station opened. Milligan's Wireless Station had the call sign 5MG, taken from the initials of its operators. One of them was Dublin-born Frank Milligan, father of future radio and TV star Primrose Milligan. (laughs) 
Well, friend of the show, Eddie Bowen, he heard that episode. As Frank Milligan was a Dubliner, Eddie wrote a blog about him, kindly mentioning this podcast. And we'll link to that blog in the show notes. It's a lovely read. It's at the Irish Broadcasting Hall of Fame blog. Well, that blog was read by Frank Milligan's grandson, Clive. Clive then met Eddie in Ireland and thought it would be nice to record for him and for us an interview with Clive's dad, Frank's son. That's uh, Andrew Milligan, the, the middle Milligan. Andrew is 99, and this is a wonderful chance to find out more about Andrew's dad, that radio pioneer born in Dublin, broadcasting in Glasgow just before the BBC began. So here is Clive and his father, Andrew, on his grandfather, Frank Milligan. Hello, listeners. This is Frank Clive Milligan from Vancouver, Canada. I'm sitting here with my father, Andrew Frank Milligan, uh, and he's going to talk a little bit this afternoon about his father, Francis, or Frank Marshall Milligan, who was one of the very early radio pioneers in the 1920s. The reason we're doing this interview and gathering a little more information is that I was online researching my lineage and I found that uh, there was a blog from a radio historian in Ireland and I reached out to him through the internet and his name was Eddie Bohan. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, Eddie. Uh, I will buy you a pint either way. Uh, I'm going to Ireland tomorrow with my wife. That'll be September 16th, 2023. We're visiting for 10 days. So I thought it'd be fun to do a little bit of an interview uh, for radio historians to find out a little bit more about Frank Marshall Milligan. Uh, And uh, so I'll be meeting up with Eddie and I'll be giving him some newspaper clippings that my father here has found and also some letters that he wrote about his experiences with radio. So let's just try a little bit of an interview here, and then I'll be able to send this to Eddie. So, Dad, uh, tell us and the listeners a little bit about your father and how he came to be uh, inventing the wireless radio system and and uh, during that time. Oh, thank you, Clive. Uh, my father was very much a, a man of uh, many skills. Uh, one might call him a Renaissance man. And uh, as as he uh, grew up uh, in Ireland, he finally uh, joined the army, left left the army, and uh, went to West Africa, where he became an expert in the cultivation of the oil palm, Hmm. which was a huge industry at the time. Uh, having left uh, Africa and after his military service, he had uh, learned a great deal about uh, broadcasting and uh, the use of radio uh, for other civil purposes. Having done so, uh, he arrived eventually in Glasgow where he opened up a radio station which was known as 5MG. This was quite a singular undertaking at that time, the only other operating being uh, uh, the British Broadcasting Service. So what was the uh, significance of the the name 5MG? Uh, 5MG, I don't recall what the 5 was, but MG stood for Milligan and Karskadden, 
who was a partner of my father's at the time. And they both uh, developed the station and of necessity, the reason why they uh, actually broadcast was the fact that people had radios or wireless systems as they were known and uh, they had to create the actual programs because uh, without that there wouldn't be any entertainment. Hmm. And uh, something, uh, a bit of history, wasn't there first broadcast uh, from land to sea? That's correct. The original station was a uh, on a motor launch which uh, was uh, moored at the famous Loch Lomond. And the reason for that, of course, was that uh, over the water you had no interference with uh, the, all the interference you get from the ground. So what was the name of the uh, motor launch? Uh, the motor launch was called the a radio Queen. Wow. And it was quite strange because uh, at that time the word radio wasn't uh, particularly well known. It was always mar- wireless. Right, okay, very interesting, yeah. And so that after that, I think it was just seemed to be overnight when the world started to learn more about this and and use it for entertainment purposes and news and information sharing? That's correct. Uh, And at that time, there was a a private uh, group who, uh, uh, I guess, contributed financially so that the operation could proceed. Uh, And it did. Prior to the formation of... uh, a government-sponsored unit called the British Broadcasting Corporation. And and here we are now, over 100 years later, and maybe this will be shared on some radio talk. So it's quite fascinating that uh, Grandpa was involved in this, and, and it wasn't just a passing uh, trend or invention. Uh, he was part of uh, something that really helped to spread the word. That's that, right. And that's... <laughs> Yeah. And uh, he was a very, very versatile man. And uh, he built his own radios. I have no idea where he built up the knowledge to be able to do uh, such an intricate piece of work uh, at a time where there was very little literature on the subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating. It really is. Well, I will uh, be meeting with Eddie, and I'll give him this uh, this little snippet of information, and uh, also all the material you've you've comprised there with the letters and the old photographs. They're over a hundred years old. Some of these, and I think he's a, a great radio historian, and and he probably has friends and people that would love to to uh, look through all this. So. Well, thank you so much for your time, and thanks to your dad. Uh, I'll be meeting a new friend and maybe having a Guinness or four. Yeah, so thank you so much for the, the information, Dad. Um, and uh, you'll be 100 uh, next year, is that right? Uh, yes. Good, fantastic. Well, we'll uh, maybe we'll talk about that. 
in a little podcast. <laughs> we are very grateful to all the people in that chain, to Eddie Bowen for sharing it with us, to Clive Milligan for recording it, for Andrew Milligan for being interviewed, and of course, way back when, to Frank Milligan. We doff our caps to you, sir. Before our final guest on this little um, intermediate podcast, just time to say, uh, I've just come back today, in fact, from another visit to the BBC Written Archive Centre in Caversham. Oh, what a marvellous place it is. I was like a kid in a sweet shop. Uh, the way it works, you have to choose in advance what it is you'd like to look at because they have miles of stuff there. And uh, for me this time, that was Arthur Burroughs's file. We've heard about Arthur Burroughs earlier this episode, of course, on The Victorian. He was the first voice of the BBC and a sort of radio prophet as well. So I asked for Burroughs's file and uh, Reith's diaries, all of them. That's a lot. Uh, from 1916 to 1938, the Written Archive Centre have all of Reith's diaries there. They look after those. So I took a lot of photos today. I took 1,000. 899 photos. Have you ever taken 1,899 photos in a single day? And I should have taken one more. I should have taken 101 more just to get to 2,000. But anyway, my phone did overheat a, a little around about lunchtime. But my two takeaways from my written archive centre visit today, well, my three, because first of all is they're marvellous people and I salute them. Thank you, written archives, angels, you're marvellous people. Um, but my observations on the past then, firstly, that John Reith wrote a lot my word, was he a diarist. He even wrote what he had for dinner some days. And uh, and B, then, if that's where we're at to, Burroughs. Um, there are a few lovely documents that I didn't know about that I saw today. There's an unpublished, uh, very short memoir, or part of one, uh, because Burroughs died before he could finish it. And there's a 1992 tribute as well from Burroughs' own son, Reginald, which uh, concludes with a, a sombre thought, I thought, on the value of his father's contribution to the BBC, saying it's for others to judge the, what he actually contributed, saying that Burroughs was, was tireless in working on sound quality and uh, the first news coverage, engaging with listeners and programme selection, working out what schedules even were, let alone how to fill them, and indeed setting the standard for that, uh, the BBC voice being the first one on the air, of course. He arranged the Melbourne concert before that and those mid-Atlantic tests that we heard about earlier. And yet Arthur Burroughs's son concludes, it's the very last thing in the file of Arthur Burroughs, is this little line, this little note that says about how Arthur Burroughs is, is largely forgotten now. This is written in 1992, but saying he surely deserves a little credit, even if he is forgotten. I will have to ask the Written Archive Centre very nicely to see if we can quote further from that memoir and that tribute to Burroughs uh, a greater length. I found them to be very moving, though. But then again, I, I played Burroughs on stage last year, and uh, and I'm writing a book about him. So I, I do have a certain emotional attachment, I'm sure, to the fellow. But either way, Reginald Burroughs, we remember your dad here. We have not forgotten him. I've just been going through some of the uh, 1,899 photos I took at the Written Archive Centre and looking at this of the first BBC broadcast, it's a write-up by Arthur Burroughs, uh, the voice of that first broadcast, and it's got just some new info that I've not seen before and I don't know quite what to make of it because generally speaking, everywhere I can see in the, uh, in the BBC history books and the like talk about November the 14th, 1922, the first day of the BBC being... A news broadcast. The press talks about it was the weather and then the news. We assembled it here on the podcast many episodes ago to sort of recreate it to the best of our ability. Thank you to Andrew Barker for essentially piecing that together for us. 
this little reminiscence by Arthur Burroughs, though, puts it a little bit differently at times. Um, I don't have permission yet to quote it verbatim, but I can sort of summarise. So uh, Burroughs uh, talks rather beautifully poetically. It's 20 years after that. So it's 1942 that he's writing this, looking back how um, it was very foggy that night uh, of the first broadcast. There's a couple of rooms at the top of Marconi House where he describes rather poetically how unusual things were happening there. Uh, he talks about the glowing valves, the Aladdin's lamps uh, that make the heart of this broadcast transmitter. And he talks about the nerves and Stanton Jeffries, the musical director, the conductor there, as they're waiting, looking at the clock as it ticks away, looking at a red lamp over the door. I've heard that alluded to before, but it's nice to see it in print there that actually they had that on-air lamp uh, even for that very first BBC broadcast. So the red lamp glows and then the Westminster chimes is struck by Stanton Jeffries on the tubular bells there in the studio. Now, firstly, uh, we did an episode of this podcast and I've been saying in the live show we've been doing about the first music on the BBC as being the 15th of November 1922. Of course, technically, the first music on the BBC was the Westminster chimes that opened that first broadcast. So that's something that we we can't take for granted. But then Burroughs actually goes on to say something that I found rather interesting. He says that after the chimes were struck in that very first broadcast, he stepped up to the microphone. He said, this is 2LO, the London station of the BBC calling the British Isles. And then straight away, the conductor's baton was drawn out. And this small orchestra there in the Marconi House studio launched straight into a piece of music, a lively march, it would seem, the very first uh, music on the BBC. Stanton Jeffries conducting this very small uh, piecemeal orchestra, the 2LO orchestra that it would become. Uh, and they've been playing on and off through the summer through the experimental broadcasts. And Burroughs notes they're all experienced musicians from Royal Abbott Hall and Queen's Hall concerts and things like that. And they were here playing for this invisible audience. And he said how marvellous that would have been. So that, therefore, is the first music on the BBC, isn't it? If Burroughs is correct... And he did an opening announcement, and then the band struck up. It's a very specific mention of what exactly was happening, so I'm inclined to believe it. But the newspaper reports of the next day don't mention music. They talk about news, and I'm racking my brains now, and I'd love to know any listeners who have seen anywhere written down that on that first BBC broadcast there was music do get in touch, paul at paulcarenza.com. I'm curious if we can piece this together and find a little more of the truth of what happened in that first broadcast. Was it just news? Uh, repeated, you know, fast and slow, different speeds, famously, uh, so that people could make notes or, you know, work out what speed they wanted to listen to things to. And then it went off air? Or was there uh, music to launch it? It strikes me there would be music. They've been doing music all summer. And they continued it, you know, from two days later. The 16th of November was the first London concert. So why not have music on that first broadcast? It seems odd not to. And Burroughs remembers it. Unfortunately, he lets himself down by then saying uh, that it was election night. Now, some places in history books you do see it said... But normally the less reliable ones um, do seem to say, oh yeah, the, the BBC launched on election night, which was the 15th of November. Generally speaking, the accepted wisdom, it was the 14th with London. And then the 15th was uh, Manchester and Birmingham joining as well. And all those three stations gave election uh, results um, and music then from Manchester played by Gramophone Record, live music from Birmingham. But it looks to me like this march, this lively march, not specified what it was, not mentioned in the programmes as broadcast files, not mentioned in the press the next day, 
But that, therefore, conducted by Stanton Jeffries, was the first music of the BBC. Although, like I say, Burroughs thinks that was election night. He's 20 years later. Is he getting a bit confused as to what happened when? People didn't, you know, didn't have the benefit of Wikipedia or the internet. They had memories. And that makes it trickier, doesn't it, to work out. One interesting detail he does mention in these notes is that the there were criticisms that night because of the quality of broadcast. You know, it's very early days. Very foggy night. And they had to open the window in the little three-minute intervals to get some air into the room. But then the fog would literally come into the room. And he said there were some critical bits of feedback saying that the announcer himself, the announcer his voice was a little bit um, uh, husky at times because of, you know, he's essentially choking on London smog. And uh, But it says also, linking it with the election night, that there were complaints that the orchestras, uh, the selected pieces were actually in some way showing BBC bias in terms of commenting on the election result just given. So I guess if an election result was given that was maybe one by one particular party, and then a piece of music is played, which is rather lively, jaunty and celebratory, that could look like it's this one-day-old BBC celebrating that particular political win. Whereas if a maudlin funeral march is played after a certain win, that maybe looks like it's critical of that party. I don't know. But there were apparently complaints sent saying that the orchestra were getting too political. Music, politics, news, I don't know what was on that first night. Who can say? Anyway, thank you, Written Archive Centre, for confusing me more, and I'm open to your feedback and thoughts. Paul at Paulgrenzer.com. Time for one more guest. He's a guest we've had on before, but I don't believe he's told us about one or two particular props that he has rescued over the years. Bob Richardson ran an exhibition last year of props. He did this at St Bride's. It was a marvellous little exhibition. I loved it. And he saved several props, including part of... A TARDIS. Is it Tom Baker's TARDIS? Is that right? Yes, it is from Tom Baker's TARDIS, the, the one that was built in 1980, the first fiberglass TARDIS. Uh, the old wooden one fell apart. And there's a story that on, on location, the roof caved in and struck uh, Elizabeth Sladen or, or almost injured her quite badly. And the decision was taken to rebuild a lightweight, demountable TARDIS, as it says on the blueprints. But that was one of four signs that were painted in house, I think, by. Morris Plum or Bill Hodgins, who were two of the sign writers, and it was painted onto strips of acetate. And in fact, um, they ended up making two TARDISes identical. I, I can't remember why, but I have photographs of them parked side by side. And next to one of them, there was a tea chest. And the sign that you see in the exhibition is actually broken. Um, it has a big chunk missing from it, which was replaced with blue cardboard uh, before it was framed. And that was in a tea chest. Um, having been dumped as um, as unusable. So I retrieved that. In his wonderful exhibition last year at St Bride's, Bob had the drum that contained the horse racing results that you may remember from the screen several decades ago. And these results were freshly inked on. Now, if you were a horse racing fan, you'd know that uh, the horses would cross the line. And the first thing the BBC Sport would do is try and grab an interview with the jockey, the owner or the trainer or somebody who had a connection with the winning horse. That was absolutely necessary because the interview might just be two or three minutes long, but that's when the caption result was being painted. And it was being done by a man, somebody like John Court or Jack Harris. He sat there with a pot of white paint and a scribbled note would be given to him that said, first number 17, Tudor star, five to four favourite. And John would letter that at speed and it would be handed to a man who had to insert it into the tumbler display unit 
And that was a hexagonal drum, which took six results. And as soon as the result was ready, it was used on air. So the, the sequence of horse racing results was an incredible thing to see because of the sheer speed. Uh, and the fact that the captions went in wet. And it wasn't until about 1980 when the silver spirit marker pen was invented. And that changed everything because it dried instantly. And the danger of smudging the wet paint was, was no longer a problem. Thank you, Bob. And thank you, Eddie Bowen and Clive Milligan, Andrew Milligan. Thank you, Judy, that audience in Chelmsford, for pointing me to that Marconi Maritime book. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to join us in Peckham, November the 10th, if you're in time, paulcarenza.com slash tour and look for the bit where it says Peckham, really. And there are other tour dates there you can look at too. If you're listening in the far future, of course, the Christmas special of this podcast will be the recording of that first religious broadcast restaged back where it first began there at Christchurch Evangelical in Peckham. Next episode, we're going to have an author's special giving you a half a dozen or so authors all at once in chronological order, giving a sort of alternative view of the past century of uh, broadcasting. Uh, thanks for supporting the podcast. If you do, patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. Thank you so much to our patrons. And we've not had a roll call in a little while. So let us thank and applaud Mark Allenson, supports us now on Patreon, Chris Queen, Charlotte Connolly, Jerry Ralph, Adrian Pell, James Morgan, Neil Jackson. Thank you, Sean Jacks, Robert Godfrey, John Hartman, Michelle Gersich, Adam Wynn, Stanley, Matt Lacey, Keith Marsh, David Jervis, Andrew Deacon, Raz Anderson, Sarah Nora Mewis, Mark Loveday is still there, Dave and Jackie, Andrew Barker, Chris Toundro as well, and Andrew Jervis is our, our longest serving patron. So Andrew, you are chief patron. Well done for, for hanging in there. And if you would like to join us on patreon.com slash Paul Carenza, £5 a month is all you need to get access to our audio, uh, the video, the writings we put up there. If you join us in the month of October of 2023 as well, I'm actually sending a gift out in the post, a real physical book or uh, old Radio Times vintage edition from World War II era or the Listener magazine, whatever it might be, something old and vintage and marvellous, a book on radio history. You can choose as well. If you look on uh, patreon.com slash Paul Carenza, there'll be a picture there and you can pick out um, one thing of your choosing. Uh, you know, it, it may have gone. Someone else may have claimed it, but if first come, first served. And a thing will arrive on your doormat as a thank you for joining us. None of that ebook nonsense. A physical thing. Gotta love books, haven't you? Speaking of books, my book, Auntie and Uncle's The Bizarre Birth of the BBC, is still not out yet. I will keep updating you with the fact that it's not out for as long as it's not out, and it, it's still not out. But soon it will be. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza, and that is why I'm not writing the book, because I'm busy making this. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. We're nothing to do with the BBC, don't you know? It's an independent podcast made entirely without their say-so. Stay subscribed and join us next time for the author's special here on the British Broadcasting Century. <laughs>